nurses in our unit identified that they had a hard time taking care of suicidal and self-harming patients that survived to come to the ICU. And so we didn't have to worry about getting buy-in from our staff. They were asking us to take this on. Welcome to the allnurses.com podcast. As a bedside nurses, we knew that it was difficult to care for these patients, and not only for them, but also for their families. There are times that we treat them, and they're ready to be transferred, but unfortunately, there is a limited number of psychiatric beds in the area. So they stay with us for a while, and they are on one-to-one observation, and um, that made it really difficult. Nurses sitting in that room, the environment is really not suited for suicidal patients. And you're like, what do I say? Do I say anything? Right. The room is dark. They don't want to eat. They don't want to look. They don't want to. And they feel the same thing. Oh, yeah. They're like, I'm the burden. You know, nobody wants to take care. They're judging me for why, what why I did. It, why doesn't my well, nurse want to talk to me? Well, right? and then think yeah. about it. They feel, okay, they're already hopeless. Everybody's right. thinking that, you, you know, loser. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in, but so, I'm a loser. And one of our focus that. was that. Smile, be non-judgmental when you walk in the room. Don't care what why they're here. Find something they like. If they said about their pets, use that for the rest of the shift to engage them in a conversation that makes them happy. I think one of the worst things is to you know you don't want to trigger something to make it worse yeah. than it already is. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. And sometimes silence is okay. Sudden, yeah. You know, just be accepting. And, and some will some yeah. will let you know that they don't want yeah. to talk and you can't force them to yeah. talk. You can't. Absolutely. What to say? Is it appropriate to ask a question? Do I answer if they ask me any questions? So these were the questions that our staff over and over had brought up and we felt that it was the best time for us to take on this project and give them the tools and equip them uh, so they can care for these patients. So we can know what to say, when to say, how to prepare ourselves and improve the care that they receive in the hospital setting. And this is non-psychiatric pediatric intensive care unit, but it can be implemented in any parts of the acute care hospitals. The first part of our project was to look at the evidence in the literature. And so when we started looking at what are the incidents of suicide completion and attempts, what we found is that suicide at 17.6% is the second losing cause of death for American youth, which is comprised of kids aged 10 to 24. Second leading cause after unintentional injuries. As scary as that number is, that's not even the patients that we're worried about because those kids don't, you know, usually don't make it to us. You know, the, the patients that we were concerned about were the kids who survived their attempt and being able to medically stabilize them. And then as Ferry was saying, provide a therapeutic environment as they're waiting to be placed in an inpatient facility. And so when we were looking at the numbers, the National Youth Risk Behavior Survey is conducted every two years. It's a self-report survey done by uh, high school students in ninth through 12th grade. And one of the things that they found is that 2.4% of students will make a suicide attempt that requires treatment. So these are the ones who survive to be treated by a physician or a nurse. Um, which is pretty scary when you think about like how many kids in that age range there are in the United States. 
looking at this survey report is that 2.4% survive, but that 7.4% attempted, that 13.6% actually made a plan, and that 172 um, were thinking about suicide. And then perhaps even more startling is that 31.5% of these students felt so sad or hopeless for greater than two weeks that they stopped doing their usual activities. And I mean, like, I don't, aside from work, I don't think I know 100 kids in grades 9 through 12. But when I, when I think about 32 of them feeling that sad, it just kind of, it makes my heart stop a little bit. We also wanted to look and see what was the perception of the nurses. When we did the literature review, we found that there was a lot of misconception about this topic of suicide and self-harm. Well, you hear it, you know, that patient is acting that way. They're trying to seek attention. You know, we hear that a lot. They're so trying to be manipulative. Or they are trying to be manipulative. We try to look and see what is our own staff's perception of the topic. And then when we did a survey, we found that, yes, there were areas that our staff um, having misconception. So we made sure that we had education prepared to kind of clarify some of the misconceptions and put the facts out there. We also tried to look into what is it that helps us build a therapeutic relationship. So we made a use of the simulation that helped us a lot. The staff felt that being able to role play giving them scenarios and then discuss the points and give them suggestions, which came from our psychiatric team, was huge. They really liked it. It gave us those um, tools that we felt that we didn't have. We didn't know what to say, what to do, but now we feel a little bit more prepared for it. Another aspect of this project was that we collaborated with our other team. Psychiatric team was very influential in developing these therapeutic sections and doing those simulations that we talked about. I like the, uh, the role play. Did you ever have the, the nurse play the role of the patient? The social worker on our psychiatry team wrote some simulations for us and we actually did. We devoted a, like a period of time to do these role playing scenarios in our skills fair, which was, you know, which was huge because we don't know how many of our nurses have dealt with suicide or self-harming youth in their own lives. When we look back at our numbers, like in 2015, we only had four of these types of patients admitted to our unit. And in succeeding years, we've had like 14 to 18. I mean, that seems like a big jump, but even then it's only like one or one and a half patients a month. It's not a high frequency, admission, but it's very stress-inducing for our nurses. And then to be able to even have a time to practice so that they can strengthen their skills before they're in a real-world situation was very helpful for them. We got a lot of feedback from our nurses that it was really uncomfortable. Like the idea of, of looking at someone and role-playing, you know, how they would interact with a suicidal or self-harming youth. It's uncomfortable you know people like felt very awkward like they were worried about like what if I say or do the wrong thing that's gonna make them feel worse or you know, and you know these are very real fears but even just providing the opportunity for them to practice in a safe environment and then to like have discussion points on validating that sometimes you know sometimes life is rough kids have stressors that 
you know, at my age, I never had to deal with. It's a, it's a new phenomenon to be able to redirect when they seem to be spiraling down into a non-therapeutic train of thought or, you know, to just to, for them to be able to practice that and to have a discussion about like, okay, you felt that, that's valid. Here are some things that we can help you with that might be useful for you as you care for these types of patients. You know, it is such a hard thing to even imagine because it's always such a sad thing. What were some of the, the reasons? Right, we did look at some of the risk factors and definitely, you know, several of the kind of larger categories are previous mental health disorders. Previous suicide attempts were a very, a very large risk factor. Personality characteristics when it comes to impulsivity or poor coping mechanisms suicide in their family, or even more recently, contagion, where kids may, a suicide attempt in their school or with someone they know, may help kids think that, oh, this is a, this is a viable way to cope with my stress. Those are all kind of like risk factors for our teens today. And with the advent of social media, you know, a story doesn't just kind of stay in the community within the grade of where the student is, but it, the stories can spread like wildfire. So I think that that's definitely a stressor that I never experienced as a youth. Also having access, access to the means. A lot of kids have access to guns. Sometimes under pressure, they try something new to get high, they don't realize um, the consequence. Sometimes they don't need to kill themselves and they're just trying something, experimenting, yes. and then um, unfortunately it leads to uh, self-injury. And then, you know, what, as we were looking at risk factors, we were also looking at protective factors. We generally think of them as, you know, personal protective factors and then like more community-based protective factors. Personal ones included like, you know, are they involved at school? Do they have good coping mechanisms or problem solving? Do they have a good sense of self-esteem? Those are protective factors kind of innate in the individual, but also protective factors in connection with their family or in the community. Are they connected with you know, people at school, whether it's teachers or students, do they feel supported and safe in their families? Are they engaged in something that gives them purpose, whether it's, you know, religion or a school sport, a job or specific cultural aspects? Those are all things that give youth a sense of self-esteem and can mitigate some of the hopelessness that they might feel if they have these types of supports. Do you deal with um, the family? And it depends. Yes, we do. In pediatric world, you are dealing with the whole family, it's not only the patient. Through this project, actually, we developed a lot of uh, resources. We collected a lot of resources for the family education. Unfortunately, sometimes the family can be the source of the problem. Those are the cases that we limit the visitations. Our psychiatric team will sort out who can come and go. Uh, but in cases that is new to them and they didn't realize it, we try to be their support. Our psychiatric team is really helpful in helping us to give them the resources they need. 